Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt. I'm joined by Jerry Scott. Hello. Later on, we're going to be talking to Matt Kelly, the editor of the New European, on uh, a year in print. Yes, that's right, we are one. And uh, after that, we'll be picking our Brexiteer of the week. Firstly, uh, Jerry, a bit more of a difficult week for, for Labour. They've had some good weeks recently, but they've had a bit more of a, a tricky week this week. Last week, just as we were doing the pod, he, Jeremy Corbyn was sacking front benches. That was on the back of um, them voting for an amendment to the Queen's speech that uh, Chukar Amuna had put forward, which was perhaps slightly at odds with the Labour manifesto, but probably not at odds with a lot of what those crowds at Glastonbury thought um, with regards to um, them. I think the poll last year at Glastonbury was 84% um, in favour of remaining. So do you think that some of those people in the field at Glastonbury will be a little bit upset with uh, Jeremy Corbyn's behaviour this week? Yeah, I think they would. And I think it... It seems so weird with um, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, but maybe not surprising that it seems things were tempered down, tempered down during the election, and now it's all kind of gone a bit off it again as we've come out of it and there isn't so much um, so much pressure. Um, I think to, you know, the reaction to the amendment was a bit heavy-handed, really, if anything. It's, um, it's a bit of a... Well, a bit of a childish reaction, I think. Well, we'll get to Jeremy when we come to do our um, Brexiteer of the week, but uh, it is worth mentioning because it, because I think I'm not sure that they thought that they were going to get the sack. Of course, with Article 50, it wasn't the case. But now he's much more powerful. He obviously feels um, that now is the time to stamp the authority on the party, and we've certainly seen that happen with Luciana Berger. That. Uh, statement that uh, the constituency party up there have put out nine out of ten of the executive is now made up of momentum members and they obviously take a very different view than their MP to a lot of things. It was a bit chilling really wasn't it? It was. It, it almost feels a bit Orwellian to me um, you know demanding that she come out and publicly apologise um, very kind of hang your head in shame and and you, you're you're very wrong, and it actually kind of reminded me of that video that was circulating um, of all the you know top American politicians sitting around the table telling Donald Trump how amazing he was. Hmm. Um, momentum are worrying to me. Um, it wasn't that long ago I was at university, and they remind me of all the worst parts of student union politics. Hmm. To be honest, um, I think it's worrying for for members of the Labour Party that don't necessarily agree with them. 
I think the thing that, that struck me most about that memo was the fact that the gentleman who's... I haven't got his name in front of me, I'm afraid, but the, who, who made the statement said that, that Luciana would now answer to us. Well, that's not how parliamentary democracy works. Not quite how it works. She answers to her electorate, doesn't she? <laughs> Absolutely. And... Um, it, that that sounded scary to me, and I would be very concerned if I was a, a moderate Labour MP, um, because this, it seems, is the beginning of 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 a real big attempt to to grasp the party once and for all. I think, because this is all about what delegates get sent to conference as well, so how things are voted on at conference and what happens there. We really are building up to a blockbuster conference for Labour. That I, I, I really just feels talking to people in the party, talking to people around Westminster. It feels like it's building to, to something um, really quite big. And I know that there was talk at the weekend, as there has been previously, about potential splits and breakaway groups and things. I've always taken that very much with a pinch of salt until until this happened. To be frank, because I think that there are. Uh, lots of very good, hard-working MPs out there who certainly don't deserve to be deselected just because they've got a slightly different view from momentum. Um, and I think it had served Jeremy well to remember that he was on the fringes of this party for a long time and uh, there was never any attempt to deselect him or dethrone him. And I think he's playing a dangerous game. Uh, do you agree that opening up a war, he's doing all right in his war against the Tories. Should he be, should he be trying to win the heart of his party as well? I, don't, I, I think it is a worry that, like you're saying, momentum are almost a party within a party at points. Um, especially worrying because whilst Jeremy Corbyn's popularity has soared, I don't think that necessarily collates to momentum's popularity soaring. I mean, they claim their website they have 100,000 members, I think, but I, I think that's probably difficult to quantify. Um, and I do think that he should be looking to unite Labour more than more than anything um like you say i think it's probably very difficult to be a moderate labor mp at the moment our hopes just a few weeks ago that chucker and, and yvonne were heading back to the front bench seemed to be uh, just just that hopes and nothing else yeah um so g20 this weekend um uh, theresa may's not got many friends really has she probably just one yeah well she didn't turn up to the press conference either did she so maybe she didn't feel uh, feel too welcome um but what a situation to be in when you've only got donald trump as your mate uh, how do you think um it's very complex and we simply haven't got time to go into all the things that are going to be discussed at g20 from korea to to brexit and all kinds of other things but how difficult is it do you think for theresa may to go to these big um conferences with lots of other world leaders when she's now without power without mandate and and uh, you know clinging on um well it should it should actually be really difficult shouldn't it but i get the feeling um that maybe it isn't because she's clinging on here as well and it's almost business as usual so she's clinging on to power here she's clinging on to kind of her reputation abroad it's all very by the coattails and it's 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 her every day now boris has said of course that he he fully backs her and she's doing the right thing for the country and that she's um, going to be around for many years to come. Um, does that spell the end, you think, now for a, for a leadership challenge before summer recess and before conference? Um, yeah, I think it does. Um, just simply because I don't think anyone's got the appetite for it. Um, everyone's knackered. <laughs> 
And also, it serves them well not to, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned last week about uh, there'd been some some talk of, of lead summer. <laughs> my, my thinking on that and speaking to, to someone who, who maybe knows a little bit about it earlier in the week was that the, there was approaches to Andrea Leadsom to to maybe mount a leadership challenge, but it was only so that she could go first and the other people could join in. Yeah. I think I don't think there's many Tories who actually want Andrea Leadsom to be um, to be their leader. But look at this seamless segue into Liam Fox because he's done a Leadsom today. No, he hasn't marched on Parliament demanding to be leader like uh, like Andrea did or Andrea's supporters did. <laughs> He has, however, attacked the press in the Commons for not supporting Brexit. Uh, what an extraordinary thing to do, Jerry. What, what's your um, what's your thoughts on that? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Are we supposed to? And I say we as a collective term. Um, just back everything that the government's doing blindly with no criticism, or you know, it's <laughs> banging on about. There are forty eight percent people in the country that didn't vote for this, so we're just supposed to ignore 48% of people. It's it's a ridiculous notion and, um, and one that's scary, actually. I don't think that MPs actually think the press should be doing this. It's just a good sound bite, isn't it? Well, I don't, well, I'm not, I don't think it is, frankly. I mean, it, you know, led some talking nonsense the other week about how the BBC should be more patriotic. Liam Fox in the, in the House today, again, rounding on the BBC but also saying that there were other members of the press who who wanted Brexit to be a failure. I I mean, even at the New European, if there has to be a Brexit, we don't want it to be a failure. That would be ridiculous, a ridiculous thing to say. And I think think it's dangerous as well. Actually, Number 10, the the Number 10 spokesman, very much distanced Number 10 from, from Liam Fox's comments and said that the Number 10 and the government and the Conservative Party value a free press. And I think... Attacking the media is a bad look. I don't know who's advising them to do it. I think it's it's hugely silly. They look stupid, and the best way for us to to combat it is for us to mock them. Um, and and uh, special mention to the PM program who, after Leadsom uh, made that comment, I don't know if you heard it, said went over to a spot called a, a, a bit of uh, patriotism with Andrea Leadsom and simply played. I think it was. Uh, Rule Britannia in the background and had her speaking about uh, some some arable farming rule or something. More of that, please, from from the media that's been attacked. And finally, this week, I, I thought it was very interesting. Michelle Barnier has spoken about how Britain doesn't quite understand yet, or at least then we understand, but the negotiators don't seem to understand. He claims that they can't have Brexit and. Uh, unfettered access to the single market and this sort of uh, frictionless trade with the EU. That might not be a shock for us, but uh, it might be a shock for quite a lot of people. Do you think, Jerry, that there's still a lot of people out there who think everything will be fine, we'll get what we want in the end, Brexit won't affect us? Yeah, I think there are two sides of it. I think that there are politicians who are putting their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 all will be fine. Um and there are members of the public who are doing that as well, a very, you know, stiff upper lip, British bulldog mentality that we're Britain, so we'll get what we want, um, when obviously that's not necessarily the case uh, nowadays. But I don't think that's generally members of the public's fault all the time. They've been lied to and they've been taken down the garden path that we will come out of this in a bed of roses, um, when that's obviously not necessarily the case. Okay, I think that just about does it for the news. I'll be speaking to Matt Kelly next. Stay angry. 
fight Brexit. Subscribe to The New European. Your first 13 issues of The New European are only £13 when you join us and become a subscriber. Order by telephone by calling 01858 438840 and quoting podcast one or order online at our website www.neweuropean.co.uk. Stay angry. Fight Brexit. Subscribe to The New European. Welcome back. I'm joined by the editor of The New European and we're going to take a few minutes now just to celebrate one year of publication. Matt, it, it, has it gone quickly that year? Are you, in, are you amazed that we've got this far? Um, has it gone quickly? It's gone. I'm not amazed, no. Uh, I think I was a bit... I was amazed at the reception it had for its first week and ever since then it's been a bit surreal, really. You know, and the, there have been moments in the last year where I've thought interest was dwindling and sales were not going to come good. Uh, and we'd have to sort of deliver on our promise to to uh, to kill the project, but that hasn't happened at all. In fact, the reverse has happened. It's it's grown. Um, it's now sustainable. It's profitable. I like to think it's a fixture now on the on the on the diet of uh, newspapers in the UK, which is wonderful. Back when you launched or had the idea to launch, let's take it even further back. Um, how many people said you're mad? Um, not as many as you'd think, and that's to Archin's great credit, I think. Actually, there were a lot of people outside said we were we were mad. Some infuriating comments on various websites. You know, the newspaper industry is a very kind of self-hating industry. There's nothing newspaper people like better than seeing somebody fail. So there was a lot of kind of hand rubbing and, and glee at the prospect of us falling. And I remember some kind of minor characters from from regional newspaper history all coming out onto one website saying, look at these idiots, look what they're doing. Have you ever seen a more stupid idea? These people must be utter morons. And that just made me feel, right, I'm going to show you, you bunch of bozos. And, and over the course of the last 12 months, we have, you know. Certainly. And because just before the just before the EU referendum and the, the subsequent launch of the New European, two other yeah. quite big yeah. launches had gone under. Yes. What was the difference then between the New European and New Day, say? Why did one fail and one succeed? Well, I don't, I don't know why New Day failed. Uh, it was a very interesting and good project. Mm. I'll tell you what was slightly different about the New European to to that and to and to other launches was that there was no ambiguity at all about who our newspaper was for. You know, it was the paper for the forty eight percent. So in terms of a place in the market, it was absolutely clear, which is a godsend, you know, if you're a, if you're trying to market it, market a a new product. And also we kinda knew where our audience was as well because we had the the distribution map handed to us on a plate by the the referendum. One thing I think has been absolutely important to the success of the New European is that we didn't give ourselves the time to talk ourselves out of what was a very good idea. You know, we decided to do it instantly because we had to do it instantly. We did it in nine days after having the idea. Uh, If we'd have had two more weeks, I'll bet you we wouldn't have done it because we'd have sort of reflected on it, we'd have maybe done a dummy, got a bit of market research and, and the market would have said don't be stupid but the market doesn't know what it wants sometimes until it sees it and uh, the New European I think is a good newspaper and 
it's a definitely a there's a big appetite there for something fresh and alternative to the same old same old that people have been really getting a little bit tired of I think and now a bit suspicious of wondering where the same old mainstream media has led us as a country so I think there's plenty of spaces for new voices and we're, we're just one of them and we're a small newspaper you know we're very small but uh, I think we're punchy and we're not uninfluential so uh, I think it's not without uh, not without the bounds of possibility that there'll be plenty of others who follow in our, follow in our wake you know the other thing, of course, that was um, fascinating about launch was the the real focus on print, and and that, that remains. Although we do have a very good website as well, but yeah. the the, uh, the the print product everyone has been saying for yeah. many many years is dead, yeah. and everything should be focused on digital. Why then did you go for a print product and not just launch a website? So loads of reasons, and in no particular order, uh, we did it because we knew we could do a newspaper quicker than we could do a website so this myth that that the newspaper game is some sort of slow lethargic platform is just an absolute nonsense you know if you know what you're doing and if you've got the infrastructure you can spit out a newspaper much quicker than you can turn out a new website so that speed was was one factor uh, the propensity for people to pay for content is much higher in print and that was very important to us that this has never been a vanity project you know it's got to be a business that stands on its own two feet so that was good getting noticed was very important who would have cared if we'd have launched a website you know who would have blinked um, who would have wanted to have written for it you know of all the great names we've got writing in the new european and some astonishing names have written for us then uh, I think they've been drawn by, in some ways, the romance of newspapers, you know, and the fact that there's a finite uh, availability of space. So if you make the cut, that's a good thing. So there's that. But perhaps most importantly was I wanted the New European to be something people could visibly demonstrate and display their affiliation to, to this cause. And if you think about it, it's really hard <clears> to... To sort of show people what you believe in these days you can wear a badge you can go on a march and carry a placard or you can carry a copy of the new european and read that on the bus and show people that you're one of the 48 percent so so all of those reasons added up to uh, a print launch over digital what have been the big moments through the year that uh, take us to that that decision that was made which must be one of the first big moments that it would carry on beyond the four weeks when did you find out that that was going to be the case and yeah so we get we only find out our circulation two weeks after the paper has gone out, which is incredibly frustrating because it means that as I'm editing the next week's paper, I've got no idea how last week's did. And editors like to sort of gauge the success of an edition based on and, and let that influence future editions. So that's tough. And and what it meant was that I didn't realise until two weeks in to the new europeans life that it was a success you know so we we were on to our third issue before i knew that actually it had performed well and no uh, anecdotal evidence at all you know didn't get any indication from people that you know it had sold well or anything so the single biggest highlight of of this experience and possibly of my journalistic career was getting an email while i was walking down the embankment in london and getting the email from the circulation department saying we'd sold 40,000 copies. <laughs> and I'd lit- I leapt into the air and sort of went, yes! 
I'd scared loads of people around me, you know. But um, it was it was a wonderful moment, and it just said to me, "We're on. We're definitely onto something here." So at that point, two weeks later, I knew that unless something cataclysmic had happened, then we'd carry on beyond the four weeks. But it wasn't really until about six months in that I started to think about it as something with some longevity to it. And again, that's caused loads of issues because we couldn't start really driving our subscription base until we were confident there was going to be something to subscribe to, you mm. know, three months down the line. Uh, we couldn't really attract advertisers who, they don't want to be part of some sort of fly-by-night operation. They wanted something that was sustainable. So advertising revenue has come late. Subscription started late. But now that we've adopted this new slightly longer time frame, all of that stuff's flooding in. And we've now got more than 5,000 subscribers. That's wonderful. I hope many of them are listening to this podcast. If you are, thank you for your support. You know, it's it's so important to us that people do back us like this and back our our journalism. And and uh, and we've got advertising money coming in as well now. So all of this stuff makes it a more sustainable uh, project. The other thing, the thing that struck me, I think, and I, I didn't um, join the European until about week 11 or 12, I think it was. So the, the thing that struck me looking at those first few editions was that it had loads of great quality stuff in there, which was my, my fear with any new launch is that it's yeah. not going to... But it had, but to back up that great content, it looked beautiful as well, yes. and that's been something that has that has continued and has and has grown. Yeah. Tell us a bit about how you and the designers approach a page and approach a front page because they really stand out, I think, on the on the newsstand. So we were very keen that it looked different, you know, and that was part of the reason about going Berliner was also that it would have a different format, a continental format, and there was actually a funny moment where. I, you know, I was very keen on having this cartoon on the front page, and I had Charlie Hebdo in mind, the French satirical magazine that obviously became famous when they were this horrific massacre took place by these ISIS nutcases. And so I went to my boss, to the chief exec, and told Jeff that I was going to do a Charlie Hebdo style front page, <laughs> and the blood drained from his face, and it was, the, and he sort of grabbed my arm and said, "You're not." And I said, "Oh yeah, no, I am. It's going to be. It's going to look great." And he said, "You are not doing." It. And he obviously thought that I was going to have some go at you know, at the profit or whatever you know, and and, and we'd have to increase security at Archant Towers. But um, it looked very striking, and from that day forth, um, the design ethos has been absolutely central to what we do. Uh, two other important reasons: one is that we are almost wholly reliant on our front pages and other key pages being shared on social media mm. to spread awareness of the product because I still think about 75% of the UK has never heard of us mm. so that's that's an important marketing tool but also I wanted our uh, our newspaper to be to look very accessible but to not be afraid of carrying very long form journalism I, I have a big belief that um the contraction of word counts that's happened in newspapers over the years can be equated to a contraction of the sophistication of the arguments we're trying to convey. So some people say, oh, there are too many words in your articles, but I think, you know, these are sophisticated, complex issues. They need to be explored uh, completely. So I wanted people to feel that there was very intelligent, high insight, but not to be a formidable, intimidating 
appearance. So it looks fun, but it's full of heavy importance. But it is fun, though, isn't it? That's the, I mean, that was my next yeah. question. It, re, it retains a, a, an optimism, even though yeah. it's been born out of something that yeah. is not good news. Yeah. Well, it would be. I mean, it would just be too miserable to conceive, wouldn't it, if you try to reflect the bloody awfulness of Brexit in terms of tone in the paper. People would be throwing themselves off bridges. Um, I think. Uh, also, I come from a, a tabloid background, so my inclination is to be uh, try to be a bit loud and relevant and noisy and and uh, and provocative, you know, and that comes through in. The cartoons we run, the front pages we choose, and the headlines we run. It wasn't just Brexit, though, was it that has that has helped the new European flourish? Because in by the autumn, we had Donald Trump as well, yeah. and and our readers are quite interested in Donald. And we did that fantastic front with the barcode position yes. on the top lip, um, and other things have happened. The new European is not just about Brexit. Is no, it? I mean in fact, the the page I'm most personally proud of was one we did on Aleppo. Um, which had a uh, a picture of a, a kid who'd been killed, a young kid who'd been killed in in bombing there, and we did. A, I always remembered this uh, Spanish Civil War poster, which the Manic Street preachers sang about. If you tolerate this, then your children will be next. And I had a a dead kid from the bombing of Madrid, and we did a pastiche of that front page, and it was very striking. And I remember we put it out onto Twitter. And immediately people were sharing it, saying, you know, wow. Uh, and we were talking about Aleppo. And for me, um, the reason I'm proud of that is that I was pretty certain that it would cost us sales. And this tells you all you need to know about the New Europeans' readership, is that we put sales on that week. So it affirmed to me that we were talking to good people and that they were receptive to strong, powerful images beyond Brexit. And... Um, you know, I think we've got the best readership in the country. You know, I think they're almost certainly all good, decent, honourable people. I'm sure. It's a it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing to be able to supply them with, you know, a little bit of sustenance and fun and and uh, inspiration. I hope you know every week. It's a great privilege. And tell us about the the back of the book, as we call it, because that that's really grown to almost be a a product by itself, hasn't it, Europhile? So tell yeah. us a bit about that. So it was very important to I did. You know, I'm not dumb enough to think that you could bore people about Brexit every week and give them 48 pages of, of you know, moaning about how terrible the situation was without turning people off. So having a second half to the newspaper, the idea is that you'd read the front half, you know, the agenda and the expertise bit. Uh, you'd probably read that on the day you got the paper, but there'd be stuff in the back half that you'd think, I'll, I'll put that by the bedside and I'll read that in the week. And that's what I do with, with periodicals. I like, like The Economist, for instance. You know, I'll, I'll absorb that news element, but I'll take great pleasure in this eclectic mix of stuff at the back, and I wanted to reflect that. And we've ripped loads of ideas off from The Economist and from other good newspapers, like the obituary, for instance, uh, at the back. They do it, somebody who's died that week. Well, we, we decided, why be so chronologically rigid? You know, we'll do it, somebody who died that week, but at any point in history. <laughs> and so we have these wonderful, uh, Charlie Connolly writes, these wonderful obits of people, some people who've been dead 300 years, but they're fascinating stories. And I wanted it to be, and I, it is, you know, eclectic, unpredictable, but well-written. And I hope 
that in every newspaper there's at least sort of three or four things that people think well that's interesting you know and they'll want to read that and that's all it takes to to give somebody a sense of of value and hopefully to get them to enjoy next week's as well so that's the idea behind Eurofile. Is there one moment or a couple of moments that really stand out from the year? There's been awards, there's been great front pages, there's been yeah. great media as well. Is there one in particular? The Well, aside from that moment when I, I discovered that we'd sold well on week one, I think the things that stick in my mind are being on any questions on the BBC. That was, that was great, mm. you know, being asked on because of the New European and also when Jonathan Dimbleby described our front page, which was the uh, Trump as Hitler yeah. front page, I was really nervous, you know, that people would think, you know, who is this sort of very far end of the spectrum newspaper editor? But they all laughed, you know, and I thought, great, you know, that's that's good. And again, that gave me confidence <clears throat> that newspapers talk down to their readers all the time. They try to double-guess them all the time, you know, and they worry about offending readers all the time. I think, you know... Readers are much more like we are, you know, much more uh, um, open to to robust journalism. So, so that's uh, that. That was a good moment. And without being too sort of navel gazing, the awards have been wonderful because even if uh, our peers in the industry hate what we're saying, I think most of them really like the fact that we are saying it, and they like the way we the way we're saying it. Yeah. And for the industry to say, this is not only a good newspaper, but this is a great newspaper, that's been a marvellous, marvellous thing. Yeah. If the listeners don't already know, if they haven't noticed in the paper, we certainly have mentioned it, the paper goes tabloid from uh, next week. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the thinking around that and what, because it's good news, what extra they're going to get. Yeah. So we had to do it. Uh, the Guardian, who print our newspaper, have the only Berliner presses in the country, and they're, they've taken the decision to close those presses. They're doing it in early next year. The Guardian and the Observer will go tabloid. And in the spirit of the New European, I thought, well, we might as well just crack on, you know, and just do it. Um, so we're doing it next week. We, we've got to go upstairs and start planning the first yeah. tabloid next week, and we're still ironing out how that will look. It will look very similar to the, broad, to the uh, Berliner model um it's going to be 64 pages uh it'll be printed here in norfolk by archon's own presses so that's that's very good um and it'll be stapled as well which is i think people will maybe not appreciate the difference that'll make but it'll help it sort of hold together throughout the course of the week uh it'll be the same price two pounds but there'll be more pages per there'll be more square inch of content and uh, we're introducing some new features and two of them that I'm very excited about are we're going to have a new uh, media columnist, a new young voice, a guy called Chris Sutcliffe, whose career I've followed on uh, various trade journalism sites who writes very lucidly about offbeat stuff. So Chris, I'm sure, will be uh, a great entertaining voice. And also we're going to have a, uh, a spread each week of um, the best of European newspaper commentary which will be translated into English and we'll, we'll reproduce that. So that'll keep our readers in touch with what Europe's saying about Brexit, which is incredibly important. So I'm really excited. I hope people like it, feel it's easier to read. Um, uh, the covers will remain just as strong. And for those wicked people who 
cover the Daily Mail with copies of the New European, uh, it's going to be even easier for them now because it's going to be exactly the same size. <laughs> so upsides all around. Okay, Matt, it's been an incredible year. I'm sure you're very proud. Um, I, I think we're all very proud to be associated with the New European. Um, so here's to the next. Can I just say before we go, uh, I have the most wonderful team of journalists working on this paper and that's been a, an absolute stroke of good fortune that, that there were the right guys to to help build this project. It's it's a very small team, but they're all brilliant working on it. Yourself included, Richard. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back. It is time to crown our Brexiteer of the Week. In Steve's absence, um, the team at the New European have put this together um, by committee. So we've got six candidates this week. Um, firstly, Jeremy Corbyn. Now... I'm not sure, poor old Jeremy, how he's made it into the list. It was looking so rosy for him when they seemed to be getting their act together on Brexit a little bit. Um, but the fudge has returned after those sackings. Um, so farewell, comrades Andy Slaughter, Ruth Cadbury and, and Catherine West, who were all sacked from the front bench for um, backing that Tuckermooner Amendment, as we mentioned in the news. Um, <laughs> Jerry, head in hand's time, surely, for, for the Remainers on the Labour side. That is a bit, and just like I said in the news, it does feel a bit like the mask has come off again, and you just kind of think, you know, a different kind of, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, quite. It's, it's so, not quite right. One, one Labour one Labour MP said to me this week, um, in in public, uh, Jeremy pretends he's, he's 7 out of 10. In, in private, he's a, he's a harder Brexiteer than than Liam Fox. I'm not sure if that is actually true, but um, but it's an interesting insight. Dominic Cummings um, is a name that I'm sure lots of you know, that the general public um, maybe not so much. He's this sort of mad genius behind the Leave campaign. He he was very much behind the big red lie bus. Um, before that, he was Michael Gove's chief of staff, and he wrote this incredible essay, um, uh, which which was sort of sent out. Um, I imagine it was like that scene in Jerry Maguire, you know, where he wrote the... Um, have you seen that film? I haven't, Jerry, no. You haven't I'm seen too, it? I'm too <laughs> old. You're too young. Okay, well, I imagine he had this sort of manifesto that you wanted to get out. The only difference was, of course, Dominic Cummings isn't Tom Cruise, and the uh, manifesto that he wrote wasn't like Jerry's. Um, it was much different. Uh, in fact, it was 250 pages of, um, if you were to believe Patrick Winter of The Guardian, um, it's either mad, bad or brilliant, he said, and probably a bit of all three of those things. Um, but he has gone on Twitter and, and seemingly changed his mind over Brexit. He says the referendum was a dumb idea um, and admitted that leaving the EU may be an error. Um, and he also said something along the lines of the fact that the whole thing was going to be a complete catastrophe. Jerry, you must want to smack him in the mouth, frankly. I think it makes it a bit of a joke. I think, you know, this really matters to a lot of people. And to me, it makes it seem like to people like Dominic Cummings, it doesn't matter at all. It's just a, oh, well, that was a stupid idea. It's over with now, isn't it? Of course, David Cameron did say that he was a career psychopath. So actually... It might be just that he's trying to get in there in the in the department for exiting the EU and get himself a job because he did add, I must say, he did add that there there would be, there are routes that the UK could take to have a successful Brexit. He just doesn't believe they're taking um, that particular route. Nigel Farage is in um, is in the Brexit factor, and uh, Steve has told me that I do have to call him a f- idiot. 
Nigel that is not Steve he this week claimed that the reason that Jean-Claude Juncker had a bit he had a bit of a tantrum I don't know if you saw it but he had a bit of a tantrum and he was telling people off for basically for not being there there was only about 30 people in in for a certain uh, sitting in the European Parliament and Nigel seems to think it, it's because he wasn't there that that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was was the maddest of all he said because he he enjoys debating with me I think I think Nigel who's who Nigel claimed that he was in he couldn't be there because he was stuck in Amsterdam um, which is an excuse that certainly wouldn't wash with my wife, I can tell you. Uh, maybe had uh, maybe had been taking part in um, some some cigarettes that weren't his normal <laughs> brand the night before. Allegedly, actually, that's not true at all. Uh, I'm sure Nigel stuck to the Regals. Um, Anne Marie Waters is also in there now. Anne Marie is um, a very strange character, frankly. Four years ago, Anne Marie Jerry, she was the candidate for Labour in South Swindon. Mm-hmm. And she was backed, um, uh, personal reference was from a very left-wing organisation. She seemed to be um, a a future leader of momentum, perhaps. No. (laughs) But times have changed somewhat for Anne-Marie. I don't know what happened, but she is now very much the hard-right candidate for UKIP. And the party has taken on a thousand new members in the last few weeks. And the thinking is that they are uh, indeed joining to back the insurgent candidate. Now, she's a friend of um, we, Tommy Robinson, everyone's favourite cuddly nutjob. And uh, she's described Islam as evil. Um, She also called Muslims killers. Uh, She's causing all kinds of trouble within UKIP, so at least she's fitting in there. There's lots of infighting in UKIP, which is what we've come to expect. But uh, she's made it onto the list because, uh, frankly, she is crazy but also she has flip-flopped somewhat from her original position. Are you, Jerry are you looking forward to seeing uh, seeing the UKIP leaders debate on the BBC? What a change <laughs> I am I am um, and I, I look I look forward to uh, quoting some of what she says on Twitter with uh, with uh, many a mocking emoji. Absolutely <laughs> the Brexiteer of the week this week is Steve Baker. Steve is the newest member of the Brexit department he must have been so delighted when he got the job and he must also have secretly hoped that the video of him from 2010 uh, speaking to a meeting of the Libertarian Alliance, which sounds like a fun bunch of people, uh, they cheered as he, as he said that the EU should be torn down and indeed that it was an obstacle to world peace. Of course, that's the same EU that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012 um, for its advancement of peace, uh, democracy and human rights. And also the same EU that, since it's been set up, has not had a war between uh, two current members. Um, and that goes back to the, to the Second World War, to the end of the Second World War, of course. And even Boris Johnson agrees that it was born out of the highest motives. Yet Steve seems to think that it is, in fact, an obstacle to peace. Jerry, any final words on, on silly Steve? Well, there's nothing quite like an obstacle to peace than uh, divisive policies and uh, dramatic statements like tearing things down, is there? What Uh, Steve, Jerry, not you. (laughs) That was the New European Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't already, then please do subscribe. Go out and buy the newspaper. It is on sale now and there's tons of good stuff in it. You can uh, log on to our website, www.theneweuropean.co.uk. Until next week, thank you very much.
you want to sing the jingle? Do you want to sing the Brexiteer of the Week jingle? Not really. Go on. <laughs> I can't do it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.